Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. French Open, unbelievable tournament, kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Our team consists of three-time French Open champion, seven-time major champion, and former number one in the world, Mats Vlander, who spent time, ironically, Mats, in London calling the French Open so that you could now come home, so that you could then go back to London for Wimbledon. A lot of back and forth. <laughs> yeah, just like clay court tennis, but that's my strength, Andy. Yep. Yeah, no, it was really fun. It was really fun to focus on tennis, to watch tennis all day, uh, pretty much every match, uh, and then talk about it. It's not the same as being on site, but yeah, it was really uh, a good time to literally take notes and dig into all the technology, the statistics that you have these days at your hand. It's amazing the information you can get. Two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine is part of the team as well. You are in Phoenix, and you did watch a lot of the French Open, uh, a very interesting tournament with lots of crazy storylines, several of which we'll get into, but how you doing? I'm doing good, Andy. It's good to be back with the boys. Great that Matt's was over there. Unfortunately, he wasn't live on site, but uh, we were getting some reports from him and uh, watching a lot of great tennis. It really did end up being a great tournament, so look forward to talking about it. Lots to get to tonight, the French Open. Uh, the tennis community lost someone very near and dear, one of the one of the great players of his day, and we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But let's start with this, because when you talk about this year's French Open, it has to start with Novak Djokovic. And I'll start with you, Matt, because it's starting to get to the point where Djokovic is at his most dangerous once he has tasted a reasonable amount of his own blood, it almost seems. I mean, you look at the Musetti match, he loses a couple of tiebreakers, he loses one more game. You look at the final against Tsitsipas, who was playing amazing clay court tennis, gets the first two sets, looks for all the world like Djokovic may have had enough by the end of that tournament, and yet he turns that thing around and, and wins in five sets. What do you make of this incredible performance by Novak Djokovic winning his 19th major. Well, I think that, um, you know, and I should know the year, but I'm sure um, you guys know it, but remember that semifinal that he played against Roger Federer at the U S open and Roger Federer had match points and he served out wide and Novak Djokovic literally put his left hand over his eyes and just ripped this forehand as hard as he could. And it went in. Because he said, you know what, I don't, I'm not going to get beaten by you, Roger. I'm going to beat myself. I feel like he's doing that for three sets now. Like after the first two sets against Musetti, okay, early in the third, we're like, oh, okay, so Novak's that's going to turn this around for sure. Because he suddenly becomes so loose. And I think it's a combination of 
he tells himself, I believe, and I've done this in the past, but not, and not with the same uh, efficiency as uh, Novak. I think he tells himself, you know what? I actually don't really care if I lose this match. It just can't look this way. And then he decided to take the ball a little bit earlier, hits the ball a little bit harder. Uh, he hit the forehand, uh, so what would that be, about four miles harder in the third, fourth, and fifth than he did in the first two in the finals. I mean, it's small things, but that's still quite a big difference. Uh, so I think everything becomes so clear to him after two sets. And I really feel like, you know, you, I'm sure you guys have tanked a point here and there at some point. And that usually when you tank, you start hitting the ball really well, but it's hard to, to keep not caring for that long, especially in the French Open final. So I feel like that's the, the mindset he goes into. Now, whether he says, I don't care about losing or not, I'm not sure. But he does know that I can't keep playing like this because the guy's going to beat me. So I'd rather beat myself by missing, but that's not going to happen because I'm too good and I don't get tired. So I, it's a superhuman effort in the finals to me. Superhuman. Johnny, your guy, Rafael Nadal, that you picked to win it last year, you were right. You picked him to win it this year. You were, you were pretty close to right. He plays a match against Novak Djokovic, and in the third set, it, it, it's safe to say that that might have been the greatest set of clay court tennis that any of us have ever seen. Certainly the greatest set of clay court tennis that Rafael Nadal has ever played and lost. What were your thoughts when you're watching the third set of Djokovic and Nadal as far as what kind of level were we seeing as tennis fans? The level was um, such, it was such a high level. I don't know if it could, could have gotten even any higher other than watching Mats Vilander on a, on a red clay court, but That's right. it really, it really was um, something to Mats see. agrees with that. Yes, he does. But, you know, <laughs> we, we, we forget, um, you know, that, that 2020 French open final, Nadal beat the crap out of Djokovic 6-0, 6-2, And then in the, and then the first set of the, of the final this year, he's up 5-0. I mean, you got to give Djokovic just an, an amazing amount of credit for, for, you know, the mental side of how he handled that. I mean, he got thumped in the, in the final before, and now he's down 5-0 and somehow he pulls his game to a to a level that that gets back into the flow and and is not getting killed anymore and he's he's matching him point for point and he just fought like a warrior I, I don't know what else to say I, I just the fact that he was getting drummed by Nadal so badly in that first set and then to to turn it around and make it a match and then fight him tooth and nail for every point. I thought his serve was a big factor in the match. I thought he got a lot of good points off of his first serve. I'd like to know what Matt's thinks because that that was bigger than I have ever seen on clay. And he wasn't letting Nadal dictate the points like he does everyone else. You know, we forget how well Djokovic plays against Nadal other than that last French Open final. I mean, he's really had Nadal's number in a lot of cases. And so he really proved it again in that semifinal match, it was definitely one for the ages. Let me, let me ask you, Andy, um, not being a clay court specialist necessarily, when you watched that finals against Tsitsipas, did you think early in the third that Novak is going to turn that around? Does it look like that to, to you, for example? I've seen it so many times because I'm so close to the action kind of thing. 
But do you, what do you feel? Do you feel like he's that just, yeah, he's going to turn it around. What does it look like? Here's what I thought. Cause I, I went on the air here on local radio and I predicted CC Poss to win the tournament going into the semifinals. I just felt like what I was seeing from him, I would go and take a little bit of a flyer and, and, and think maybe this guy could get it done because not only was I impressed with, with what I had seen from him earlier in the, in the French, but earlier in the clay court season as well. But then when I came to realize is this about Novak Djokovic, and that is the key to his best of five set matches are the third set. Mm-hmm. I feel like if he wins the third, he will win the match because if he's down two sets to love and he turns the momentum around, then he kind of, he kind of smiles both at himself and had his opponent, and the opponent goes, oh, God, he's awake now. If he goes up two sets to one on you, he's likely to roll you out of there in four. And if, of course, he's won the first two sets, the match is obviously over. But even being down two sets to love, if Novak Djokovic, and I don't care if he's playing Federer, I don't care if he's playing Rafa, if he wins the third, he's going to win that day. So when he went up you know, early in the set, I not only felt that he had turned the match around and he would make it a match, I felt that if he won the third, he would win the match, and he did. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. You know that that was the first match that Rafa Nadal has lost on clay in five sets when he won the first set. Matt, so I'd like to ask you a question because the two shots, like I, I mentioned the serve with Djokovic, I thought it was he served fantastic. Yeah. The other shot that I think was was very tactical and, and really – might have been the, the the bigger shot for him was the drop shot in both the Nadal and Sitsipas match. And when you played in in all your successful French Opens, how how much did you drop do the drop shot and 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 tell us what your thinking is on that because it's really effective on clay. Yeah, well, we couldn't really hit the drop shot in our day because we didn't hit the ball hard enough, and you know this, Johnny. We didn't hit the ball hard enough to actually make the other guy take a step back if you had a big forehand or a backhand. Not even when Lendl uh, ran around and hit a forehand, did you take two steps back so that you were open for the drop shot? You know what I mean? The, the power Makes sense. Was, yeah. Right. But i tell you what's very interesting is that uh, Philip Chatrier court is windy. And it was windy in the finals. Uh, and from where the TV cameras were, Okay, so the umpire's chair on your left, from where the TV cameras were, that's where the wind comes from. Okay, and if you watch that match, and I knew this early on, so in the tiebreaker uh, in the first set, Tsitsipas was up, I think it was up 4-2 from that side, and the, uh, Djokovic served for the set at 5-4 into the wind, Tsitsipas broke. I mean, it's, the wind makes such a big difference. And here's the interesting thing. The wind comes from the west in Paris, so therefore you have all the... Bois de Boulogne and all the rich neighborhoods is west of Paris. Okay. East of Paris is the industrial area and some of the poorer, poorer parts. Now, down on Philippe Chatrier, the wind blows from east to west, even though the flags above the stadium blows west to east. And it's always been like that. Interesting. Since I was playing, it was always wind from the one side. And I think the drop shot, if you pay attention, uh, or look at the match, he never hit a drop shot when he had his back towards us. It was always from the other side. Ah. And early on, uh, Djokovic didn't have enough power when he played into the wing. Tsitsipas had that forehand, and he was creating uh, a, a lot of opportunity with the forehand because he hit it so hard, and he could hit through the wind. 
and Djokovic doesn't really have that power on his forehand. But then he figured out that I'm going to use the drop shot a little bit. I'm going to take the backhand a little bit early. I'm going to hit the forehand flatter into the wind. So that's the that was incredible how Novak had no idea about the wind, how to deal with it, and then he figured it out completely. But here's another thing that I found out. Djokovic has lost to the following players at the French Open. Roger Federer, Dominic Thiem twice, Stan Wawrinka, and Marco Cecchinato. One-handed backhands, all of them. Lorenzo Musetti, one-handed backhand. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas, one-handed backhand. And then, of course, he's lost to Nadal, which has a forehand in the backhand corner. So what we figured out is he struggles against players that have a massive variation from their backhand corner with a massive amount of topspin and some slices in between. So he doesn't get that rhythm on a clay court because he's got to take the topspin earlier. The slice stays low and he doesn't have generate enough racket head speed. So when he was being beaten by Tsitsipas, we all like, well, this makes sense because that's those are the guys he struggled against. So that's why, to me, he turned that thing around so convincingly. And that's where I think he looked like he was 10 years younger than uh, Rafa Nadal in the semis, first of all, I thought. And at the end of that match against Tsitsipas, he looked like he was 24, same age as Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas was worn out. And Djokovic, he doesn't get tired. I mean, to me, I don't think we should talk about him winning 21 Grand Slams. I think we need to talk about him winning the calendar slam because he's never done that. And now he's got the first two. He's a big favorite Wimbledon, right? We agree on that. And he's the big favorite U.S. Open. I don't see – It's a hard. I have a hard time seeing him being beaten this year, I have to say. Leave it to a three-time French Open champion to give you the lowdown on wind and spin at the French Open. The other big story that was going on during the tournament, a little earlier in the tournament, guys, was the decision for Roger Federer to withdraw from the event. Now, this was the first time in history that Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer were all in the same half of the draw. Johnny, I'm going to ask you this because I've already kind of gone back and forth with Matt's about it. I want to get your thoughts. Do you think that to some extent Roger Federer was offended by being in the same half of the draw with Djokovic and Nadal? A day or two prior to withdrawing from the event, he makes the comment, well, I'm not going to win the French. And suddenly he didn't seem like he had hurt himself. Maybe he's pacing himself. But did you think that it was disrespectful to the French Open for Roger Federer to withdraw like that? My question on that is, did he know that he was going to win the match and not go on to play the next match after he won? I just can't imagine him having planned in his mind, if I win this match, I'm not going to play. Because I, 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 I would think if that was the case, then he would at least give the other guy a shot to go on to the next round and make it maybe make a, you know, the fans lose out, everyone loses out. What I don't understand on this deal is, was there an injury? I mean, did he claim an injury? Because it's just, it's, it's very confusing to me, that whole situation. All right, Matt, you, of course, are prone during the French Open to come out with something controversial about one of these great players. Last year, it was Andy Murray in the wild card situation. And this year, you talked a little bit about Roger Federer. But why don't you talk about what Johnny, I mean, did he know that he wasn't going to play on? 
did he realize in the middle of the night, you know what, I think I may have tweaked something. Should he have gone to the net on match point and withdrawn and, you know, and, 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 and let Kepfer move forward and get some points and make a little more money? How could this have been handled at its best? So the confusing thing with Roger was that in the press conference after his match, they asked him or they touched on, is he going to be okay to play in the next round? And he already touched on, I don't know. I'm not sure. And it's not a decision that I can make now. I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow, but certainly I'm not pulling out right now. So I, it was weird that it was touched on and that it was weird that he kind of opened the door just a little bit to, well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to play. Whereas, you know, he could have said, yeah, of course, I'm in the tournament. I'm going to play. But he also did say, I don't know now until tomorrow. I got to see how I recover. So, you know, yeah, it would have been, I, I'm not sure. I'm in two minds. It's Roger Federer at 39 years old. Uh, he's only played up to that point, three matches in 18 months. I think the win was too big. The fact that he actually won the match point and not just was at match point, I think the win was necessary for his confidence because confidence doesn't, you know, doesn't grow on trees unless you play a lot of matches. So I'm okay with it. I also do think that you, we have to take into consideration that they put Roger Federer at night with eight spectators and it's after midnight and if I was Roger Federer I would say you know what I'm out here I love it but I'm gonna win this match and I don't not really thinking about the future so I'm actually okay with it now in the aftermath yeah it would have been really cool I mean it would have been really Roger Federer thing to do to listen uh, I got match point but I know I'm not going to play in the next. I mean, it would, would be typical Federer in a way to do that because he's so uh, so fair, such a sportsman. But I think if he had six or seven clay court matches beforehand, then I would have had a little bit of a problem with him touching on it uh, this, the, in the press conference. But because he's played so little, I have a hard time going there. And I mean, it's 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 uh, we're pros and he's hoping that he wakes up and he's 29 years old the next day. When we come back, women's tennis, based on this French Open, where is the sport right now? Is what happened having an unseeded player win the singles and, for that matter, win the doubles, defeating a, a number 31 seed in the final? Is it good for women's tennis? Where does all that stand? You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're going to talk a little women's tennis when we come back because, quite honestly, we're not sure what to make of it. So don't go away. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media. But why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So 
we're used a lot and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by squad pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with squad pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Andy Zoden, joined by the great Matt Spielander, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world, my former teammate at the University of Texas, two-time Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. We talked about the two big storylines on the men's side. Obviously, what Novak Djokovic did winning his 19th major. Roger Federer deciding to pull out of the French Open, a pretty controversial move that we probably have not heard the last of. But let's move over to the women's side because we're not really quite sure what to make of the state of women's tennis, Mats Vlander, after what we saw with Barbora Krejcikova winning the singles the next day, winning the doubles, unseated. First of all, has an unseated player ever won a major? both the singles and the doubles in the same major. I can't imagine that's ever happened. I, I don't think so. The last time a lady won uh, the French Open in both singles and doubles was Mary Pierce in 2000. But, of course, she was kind of carried by Martina Hingis in the doubles. So that makes life a little bit easier. But Barbora Krajcikova with uh, Katarina Sinyakova was seeded number two. So kind of the favorites in a way to win the double. So that wasn't a big surprise, but um, she's an unbelievably good tennis player. She has, I mean, some of the cleanest, nicest uh, strokes, uh, forehands and backhands that I've seen on the women's tour. I think that she, she uh, doesn't have great movement. She can improve there, but I, I think that obviously with Ash Barty pulling out early, with Naomi Osaka, uh, pulling out early with uh, Arina Sabalenka um, being beaten by Pavlyuchenkova. I mean, the favorites, Serena Williams, obviously going out to Rubakina. The, the favorites were all gone. Iga Swantek uh, got beaten by Maria Sakari. So I guess it was open in a way, but I'm starting to think that women's tennis is going to be unpredictable going forwards because they do have much, they serve good they serve great these days so they actually by that i mean they're getting some free points in their service games and playing two out of three sets when your serve is a weapon there's a lot of luck involved even on a clay court so i think we better get used to seeing uh um unseeded players do well maybe not win both singles and doubles but i think that's something so i would like to kind of open up is it time to put women's 
singles in the three out of five set match because why shouldn't they? I don't see a reason. They're fit enough. They're good enough. Um, now we know that it, uh, and Novak can turn a match around after two sets to love down. But why can't Serena Williams? Why can't they do that too? So I think it's time to to rethink. And I don't know why they're not playing three out of five except uh, of logistics and they don't have enough courts to have both of them play five sets. But I think you're going to see that. And then the, the, the depth of women's tennis. There was some amazing clay court matches uh, between players that we really haven't heard about. Paula Badosa of Spain. She plays real clay court tennis. So I found that all the women today, the younger women coming up, they are now hitting with topspin on the forehand. They're no longer just hitting flat through the court. They're hitting some sliced backhands. And they have really taken clay court tennis to the next level. There was a time when Maria Sharapova won the French Open and she couldn't slide. And those days, I think, are over. I think these, these young girls, they are so complete. They have weapons everywhere. They serve well. And they have learned how to spin the ball on both sides. Maybe it's the rackets. Maybe it's all the fitness and strength they do. But I think we better get used to it. All right. So, Johnny, Matt thinks that we should rethink the best of three and maybe consider best of five. Is it also time to rethink some of the media demands on some of these players after the aforementioned withdrawal from the tournament of Naomi Osaka, one of the top draws in the sport, who cited mental let's call it instability. I don't want to necessarily call it mental illness, but depression. She's had bouts with things that have caused her to feel uh, a level of uneasiness and anxiety in doing these press conferences. Should a player of her magnitude be forced to deal with the media to the extent that these players are asked, or should they occasionally be given a break if they cite some of the things that she cited? Well, here's my take on this situation. I'll be, interested to hear your guys's take but um i have a lot of sympathy and empathy for you know mental illness because it's 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 wide ranged in in this world and and i think it's been covered up for most people are embarrassed about it over the years and i think it's finally coming to the forefront where it's being accepted and and people don't have to feel ashamed if they have a, a mental illness the way i looked at the osaka situation i was a little puzzled by it honestly because Naomi Osaka, we can tell that she's introverted. We can tell that she's shy. Up to this point, we haven't really known that she's had trouble with with media, or at least I haven't seen it. I mean, she does the interviews. Sure, she's quiet. You could tell she doesn't love it, but she does it. The on-court interviews, the press conferences. What I was, what, and I might have mentioned this to you, Andy, I don't know, but what I read, I read something that what had happened during the Italian Open was she lost early and she was struggling on the clay. And her sister came out with a statement that said that she had uh, once someone in her camp had mentioned that she, you know, wasn't that great on clay. And she heard that comment and it had gotten into her head. And so she was having a struggle mentally about, you know, whether she really believed she could play on clay. So the way I viewed her wanting to bypass the press conferences and the media was that she just wanted to get this out of her mind that she couldn't play on clay and that she knew that the press was going to bring that up 
And so the way she was going to deal with it was that she wasn't going to do any press. She was just going to ignore them so that that question never came up. See, I think that's different than having a, a anxiety with answering questions. I think it was more of a mental thing that she couldn't handle. And I, I, look, I, I think it's a shame that she can't handle it. But I mean, she is one in the world. It is part of being in the situation that she is. So I, I wasn't really a big believer that, you know, she should get a pass on, on the media for that reason that her sister came out with. That's that's the way I looked at it. To clarify, she's two in the world, Barty number one. I know that you, you realize that. But one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, Matt, was that I had a conversation with Dr. Jim Lair. And I asked him about this. And he said, you know, that he was concerned that what could potentially happen with Naomi Osaka, if the tour was not careful, was very similar to what happened with Bjorn Borg, which is that they would put demands on a person who did not have the emotional and or mental infrastructure with which to deal with those demands. Borg could handle anything that came his way on a tennis court. Seems like Osaka can too, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got all the faculties necessary to deal with whatever comes your way. And I know that John McEnroe has never really forgiven the tour for taking away his dear friend and great rival. Do you see that comparison as being a valid one? Yeah, I can definitely see that. And I can see that she that she uh, has a tough time. I think that she has way more pressure on her than we can ever imagine being Japanese and, and making the most money as a professional uh, athletic woman ever last year in something like $55 million in a year in sponsorship money. And that's obviously most coming from the Japanese market. So, yeah, I can see that. I mean, with Bjorn Borg, uh, what happened is that he didn't want to play uh, the, uh, I think it was eight tournaments that you had to had to sign up for uh, sort of in September the year before. And he said, I don't want to do that. And then uh, they said, well, then you're going to have to qualify for, for the majors. And he said, okay, I'll do that. And then at the French Open in 1982, he was going to play qualies. And they moved the qualies from a club called Jean de Bois into Roland Garros because Borg was playing. And Borg said, I'm not playing at Roland Garros, the qualies, and they were going to charge the ticket prices. So I think Borg was really stubborn, and I think he hated the press. The problem I have with Naomi Osaka is not the mental instabilities, like you call it. Yes, when she came out with that, we all like wish her good luck and, and uh, obviously and hope for the best because we want her back. But the statement also said that she had suffered from bouts with depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, Okay. Now, the statements and the public social media that she's done since 2018, and one of them being uh, rightfully so, and I, I, I admire her for doing it, but she was quite outspoken uh, with the Black Lives Matter. And that's obviously all that's great. She went out and said, she, we are as athletes, we have a platform and we should be able to speak. We have a voice and we stand up for other people. So... That's all good. But when you do that, you have to realize there are consequences when you put yourself out there. So to me, it's like, where is the agent? Isn't that why you have an agent? Naomi, if you go out there and do ABC, they are going to come after you and they're going to ask you questions about everything. And now it's going to be a political thing and, uh, and, and whatnot. And, and in the social arena, she, she didn't realize that. So I don't buy that part 
uh, that she's had depression for three years. I buy that part. But then you got to think about what you put out on social media. And she literally invited people to come in and, and uh, admire. And I guess some people would criticize. So I think it's a lesson learned for everybody that you got to be careful. You can't go out there and say things and, have, and, and, uh, and think you have a voice and then not stand up and answer to it. So I think she opened up the door and I think it was, uh, she didn't realize what the consequences are going to be. And I feel really bad and I wish her good luck for sure. But it, to me, I don't blame, where is the agent in these situations? The agents need to, to look after these young people. Well, as far as bouts with depression since 2018, I can see where having been beaten up a little bit the way she was with regard to some of the decisions that she has made about coaching relationships uh, some of the decisions that she has made in her personal life with regard to who she has chosen to uh, have have relationships with and some of the behaviors that have come from that. I can see where she has had lots of different things coming in her direction. And, uh, and, and clearly, she's got a long way to go to mature into the type of person that she is an athlete. She seems to have her heart largely in the right place. But to your point, Matt, she is not being directed very well. And then before we check out of this segment, I would just like to say while we're on the subject of women's tennis, best performing American singles player, men or women, Johnny Levine, Coco Goff, quarterfinalist. And didn't she have, Mats will know this one, didn't she have five set points against Krejcikova? She sure did. She was a better player for the first set, yeah. I mean, she gets by that match. And yeah, I mean, Coco Goff's clay court uh, performance during the clay court season was, was fantastic. I mean, she's going to be tough to beat on clay going forward. I mean, she's, she could do really well. And it just seemed to me, Matt, and then I'll give you the last word on this. It's not necessarily so much her, her ability to play on clay as a surface, because I saw her losing her footing and losing her balance all kinds of times, far from proficient on sliding around on the clay, certainly the way you did in your heyday, but gritty, determined. We talked about how some of these really tough matches and, and leads that she had given up and some of those seesaw matches that she was involved with and how she had to earn everything she got would come home to roost. And it seems like that's starting to happen and that the French Open might really be a, a little bit of a peek into the, maybe her future as a competitor. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we, um, I actually uh, shared a plane or we flew in the same plane with uh, Jose Higueras the day after the French Open was finished. And we had a good chat uh, about the tournament while waiting for our luggage. And uh, we touched on Coco Goffin and he, he kind of said, that, yeah, I just hope that she's still having fun because I'm not sure she's having fun fighting. Right. I have to say that when you're 17 years old and you break a racket the way she broke it, I mean, you should be slightly shy at 17 and you should not feel like you have the right to break a racket on the Philippe Chatrier court. And certainly when you're not 18 years old, when you're still 17 and, and you're still a minor. So I'm a little concerned that she uh, is so ambitious and everything is so serious that is, is she still having fun at 17? Because if she is, I believe she's going to be the best player in the world with the weapons she has, the way she moves and her, uh, her mental uh, strength that she has. Uh, but at the same time, you got to keep having fun because it's still a learning process for her. And she's not even close to being fully learned, but I just hope we see a little bit more smiles from her. And um, 
you know, determination, but she's got to enjoy her tennis. And I don't know, breaking a racket like that and smashing it like five, six times until there's nothing left. I mean, seriously, if that was my kid that was not 18, I think there'd be rules there. Listen, if you do that, you're not going to play the next tournament. I don't, when you're 18, you're, you can do what you want and you suffer the consequences. But as a 17 year old, I think there needs to be some very good guidance around there. And I'm sure the parents are great. And, and the Patrick Moore to has a great tennis Academy, but they got to slow it down a little bit. And, and uh, it's not that serious. It's a long-term project. So I'm slightly concerned, but yeah, she's an amazing, um, amazing athlete. And she could have easily won that tournament for sure. All right. There you have it. According to Matt Vlander. Until you have the right to vote, do not obliterate a tennis racket. But once you turn 18, let her rip. All right, when we come back, kind of a somber subject that we have to address, and we will when we come back on kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We're talking the great Bill Scanlon when we come back. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And, fellas, I have to admit that this is a subject that we knew that we had to touch on and we knew that it would be very difficult. But during the French Open, the tennis world lost a, a, a player uh, from your your generation, Matt's and yours too, Johnny, because you guys played a little doubles and one of my first tennis idols. And uh, on June 2nd, we lost... Bill Scanlon, uh, a, a very difficult bout with carcinogenic melanoma, and um, it was it was shocking. It happened fast. The news broke again, Matt, during the French Open. I know that you had a history with Bill. We all did, but I'll start with you because you guys had a couple of good battles during your pro career. We did, yeah. Bill was an unbelievably talented, smart player 
dangerous player. And I would say, I didn't play him on the clay court, but I would say that he was pretty good on everything, but certainly on a hard court and the grass court. And in 1981, I made it to my first final on tour. It was, of course, they were called the, the Grand Prix Tour in those days. And uh, I played Bill Scanlon in Bangkok. And I've had matches in my career where the other guy has toyed with me completely. Peter Rennett was one of them, uh, where I was, uh, you know, I was pretty good at the time and no chance at all. And Bill Scanlon was literally the first guy that made me realize that, listen, man, if you come into this Pro Tour with no power, we're going to destroy you. And they destroyed me by giving me less power to work with. Bill Scanlon was so difficult to play on a fast court because it didn't really come into the net the whole time. He was chipping the backhand, a great backhand, a little sort of a chippy forehand at times. Really, really hard serve to read. Uh, and there's so much natural raw talent there. But of course, you thought this is a, he's a giant mentally because he didn't really say that much. So, I mean, when I lost to him, I'm like, this guy's got to go to the top of the game because he, he was so talented, uh, I thought. But yeah, what a great player he was. And yeah, just a nightmare for uh, a lot of people. Obviously, he had much bigger wins than against me, but he, he kind of put a dent into my confidence early. And I always had problems against players that played that style. And it was Bill Scanlon that opened that can of worms for me. He is survived by his wife, Stephanie, of 10 years, relationship of 20 years, and his younger brother, my age, Johnny Scanlon, uh, who was a very good player in the juniors. And Johnny Levine, you had the good fortune of, of playing doubles with the 1976 NCAA singles champion from Trinity University, which was right down the road from where you and I went to school in Austin. Talk about your memories of Bill, because when you and I talked about it and we first heard that he had gone into hospice, we were both pretty upset to hear it. And you had talked about some memorable uh, times that you guys spent together. Yeah, I don't know exactly how we ended up playing doubles together at the Japan Open. And I believe it was 1987. We ended up losing in the first round. But, you know, we both were looking for a partner, I think. And I think Bill had dropped off a little bit. It was towards the end of his career. But I was ecstatic to play with Bill Scanlon, who to me, you know, he was a big time U.S. player that, that a lot of guys looked up to. He's older than me, but a great career. He won six singles titles, six doubles titles. He got to the quarters of the Australian Open, quarters of Wimbledon, semifinals of, of the U.S. Open. He had a lot of great wins. He reached nine in the world. And Bill Scanlon, you know, had a not only did he have a wonderful tennis career and junior career and college career, but he went on to do some great things in the business world and was very successful. I, I remember running into him after our careers and at a business conference in, in Los Angeles and, and went up and talked to him. And I, I have a fond memory of that. And he was very, very nice. And uh, when you told me about it, Andy, it, it, it really hit me hard. And uh, it's just too young and very, very sad. You know, when I was 11 years old and I started playing tennis, at Brookhaven Country Club in Dallas, Texas in 1973, Craig Carden and I used to watch a lot of the great players in Dallas, you know, guys our age that you played against, Johnny like Talbot Davis, guys who were a little bit older like Jeff Turpin and Jay DeLuey. And then when it came to Bill Scanlon, he was sort of about as high on a pedestal as you could put a player. I didn't know a lot about tennis when I was 11 or 12 years old, but to me, 
watching Bill Scanlon at 16, 17 years of age when I was 12, 13 was like literally watching perfection on a tennis court. And I think you touched on that a little bit, Matt, with regard to how smooth he was and how well he moved and how effortless he seemed and how, you know, he always seemed very well dressed and very well put together. And he had, he had, a, he had a swagger about him. And some people sort of, you know, referred to it as arrogance. And he and John McEnroe kind of were literally sort of the New York City and Dallas versions of one another. And as a result, uh, they got after each other pretty good from a personality standpoint. But I would assure you that uh, in speaking of, of Bill Scanlon, I would think that John McEnroe would probably have some pretty fond memories of their matches. Um, although in 1984, you mentioned that Johnny Bill made it to the semis of the U.S. Open, and, and John McEnroe was one of the scalps that he collected along the way. And of course, John was number one in the world at that time. I remember watching that match at his older brother's apartment with his brother, Flip Scanlon, who was also a friend of mine. And, um, and, and Bill and I became friendly in adult life, did some radio together, and he came out and did a, a couple of events for me in Denver. And all of us who remember growing up with Bill just held him in such high regard. And he was a little bit kind of enigmatic and tough to get close to back in those days. But when we all got into adult life, Bill really became a very good friend to all of us and a supporter. And uh, I just haven't talked to anybody that didn't feel like uh, we really lost a really good friend and a really good person in the tennis community. And I want to thank you guys for allowing me because I, I really did become pretty close with Bill in the latter years to be able to pay tribute to a guy that I feel like contributed as much to our sport as he did. And, and Matt, thank you very much for the kind words. I know that his family would obviously very much appreciate that. And, and same with you, Johnny. So thank you guys. And, and we just want to wish uh, the surviving members of his family, you know, our, our, our best and, and our love. And I think that the tennis community at large um, has nothing but good memories of Bill Scanlon. And Andy, we can't forget um, one of his highlights being in the Guinness book of world records by getting a golden set, right. Over Marcus Hosevar. not, did not lose a point. Didn't lose a point. What an incredible story that was. Um, it immortalizes him in our sport. And to just tell a quick story, I suggested to Tennis Channel that they do something with that golden set on one of their best of fives. And they called me a couple of months later and said, Andy, we're going to do your show. And I'm like, I thought they were talking about my radio show. And I go, oh. And they go, no, 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 we're going to do that television show idea. And we're going to call it Never Again. And it's going to be things that will never happen again. Chris Everett winning you know, uh, a major every year for 13 straight years, two sisters, you know, growing up in the projects in LA and becoming number one and two in the world. And just some of the things Roger Federer, I think making 25 straight semifinals of majors or maybe quarterfinals, just things like that, that will just never happen again. So we, Bill and I agreed to go out there and to LA to shoot the show. And I was, two days removed from making the flight to LA to do this when Yaroslava Shvedova got a golden set on Sara Arani at Wimbledon. And I could not believe it. It was only the second golden set in the history of pro tennis. So I thought to myself, oh my God, I've jinxed this whole thing for Bill. They're not going to do the show now. So I called them and they go, well, no, that's actually on the women's side. And we'll still do the show. So I got to go out there. Bill picked me up at the airport. But the only one in men's tennis belongs to 
the great Bill Scanlon, and as a result, he will be forever immortal in our sport. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden from Matt Zvidlander and Johnny Levine. Look forward to talking a little grass court tennis with you next time. But in the meantime, have a great summer, and we'll talk to you guys soon.